courtesy of BAM! Sports.com, Stitcher.com, iTunes. Subscribe to this lovely, sexy, wonderful podcast for free. Tune in media for your mobile devices, Google Play Podcast, and we are also on Spotify. Welcome in, ladies and gentlemen, to the show that we so lovingly call BAM! on Bulls, the show totally, utterly, and foreverly dedicated to the Chicago Bulls and NBA talk. I am Big Dave, and I am riding solo. My man C-Dub has some things he had to do, so this is my first ever podcast solo. So it's some history going on right now, at least for me it is, because I've never done this before. So we'll see how it goes, but I have a really excellent guest with me, um, four-time NBA champion, uh, pre and post game show uh, analyst for NBC Sports Chicago, the great, the awesome, the cool Will Purdue. Uh, I was like a six year old kid when he came on here for real. Because, um, you know, I've been watching Will Purdue for a very long time, you know, for his career and, you know, watching him be an analyst on NBC Sports Chicago. So this was really some dream come true stuff for me. And man, he called me his friend. I still can't get over that. Me and Will Purdue are friends and he can't take it back. He actually said it at the beginning, but I forgot to hit record. So you're not going to hear that part, but trust me, he said it. I wish I had proof so I can play it for my family (laughs) straight up. It's awesome, man. So, but enjoy this. This is going to be a two-parter. This is part one of it. Uh, We talked a lot about his career here with the Bulls, the things he did in San Antonio, a lot of stories about Jordan and Pippen, man, and those championship years and playing in the 90s. It was really thorough, and I just appreciated him being so open uh, here on ball. So without further ado, you guys enjoy the show. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast uh, and our YouTube channel, the Ball YouTube channel. You can find our podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Um, make sure you check us out on Twitter at Ball Sports and at Ball Sports One and on Instagram at Ball Sports. So enjoy the show and go Bulls. Peace. Bow. You want to change your name from Outsiders to Outcast. <laughs> I still consider you somebody that I, I continue to work with because I occasionally come on the Outcast uh, show as well. But uh, I've also learned about your fandom, but also have learned about your knowledge of the game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, one of the things I try to tell, you know, I, I can honestly say I used to be one of those guys that would be like, all right, now hold on a second. You didn't play the game at this level. So, but I've kind of, one of the things that, you know, you guys taught me. Uh, so basically, you know, you and, and Matt and John is, is that, you know, People can still understand the game and have a knowledge of the game, but not necessarily played at that level. There's, there, there's some differences and that's more about experience sometimes than knowledge, mm. but you guys helped teach me that. So that's one of the things where, you know, once I kind of got over that hump, you know, I always enjoyed you guys because it's just, you guys kind of kept it light and kept it funny. You know, you kind of helped us get through, through uh, some bad times <laughs> sitting back in that green room. But as I kind of got to know you guys a little better and, and dropped my guard, I also realized that you guys, you know, outside of your fandom, you guys, you know, were knowledgeable of the game of basketball. So that's, that's what I appreciated. So it's one of those things. If you, 
if you play your cards right, it also helps you learn things as well. And that's kind of where, um, you know, I still believe uh, you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> still a dog, man. You know what I mean? Still a dog, man. Wow. Will said, you I'm, ain't got fleas. It's all right. <laughs> Will just called me his friend, ladies and gentlemen. So, yeah, I'm excited right now. Yes. Yes, this is awesome. But, yeah, Will, um, I, I still remember stuff like, I remember, I still remember the day when I first saw you, like, walk into the green room. Like, that still sticks out in my head. Cause you walked in and I was just like, yo, I was like, that's Will Perdue. And I kept saying that in my head, like, dude, that's Will Perdue. Like, wow, he really is that tall. That's crazy. Like, I was just super excited, you know what I mean, to see you. So the fact that, you know, you even want to hear, you know, what me, Matt and John even have to say is mind blowing to me. So, cause that's what I always try to go after. I try to go after, you know, the respect first, you know what I mean? Right. From people before I do anything, uh, I just try to go after the respect. So if you guys respect what I'm saying, then I'm like, okay, well, then it can go from there after that. So yeah, that means that's, a lot. That's old school thinking right there. Cause that's one of the things that I talk about now about the way the league is now. Sometimes I think guys have a tendency to forget their priorities in the sense that, you know, respect should always be at the very top of the list. Yeah. Not necessarily whether somebody likes me or not, not whether I get along with somebody, you know, because it was interesting. I had a conversation with uh, somebody yesterday regarding, and I'm trying to think, who did I talk to yesterday regarding that? But, uh, oh, there's a guy out in uh, California that's doing a book about Scotty Pippen. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is second or third time we had talked. And I was brought up the fact that, you know, there's, there's no – one formula for winning a championship. You know, you had the Chicago, when I played with the Bulls, it was very business-like atmosphere. You know, everybody was business partners, people that you worked with. We didn't necessarily hang out a lot together. There were the cliques, but, you know, it wasn't fa a family atmosphere. Whereas San Antonio was very family atmosphere oriented. And, but both those places, you know, with Jerry Krause and, and Phil Jackson, even though they, uh, didn't get along and Greg Popovich, you know, with San Antonio, it was, it was about respect first. And then once, as you just talked about, once you develop that respect, that also has helped strengthen relationships, you know, as well. Cause I think you and I both know we've had relationships with people that we've worked with or friends or whatever, but just their personality, something's different about them. You just don't, you know, it's hard to say. I guess you just say they're not as high up on that friend ladder because of, there's something about them that you don't respect them as much as, as other friends because of, uh, you know, better matching personalities or something like that. You still consider them friends, but like you said about because of a lack of respect or they don't take things as serious as you do, you know, that kind of uh, affects the relationship a little bit. Right. That's true. That's all fact, man. And yeah, that's old school. I mean, that's just how I was raised, man. Like, you know, my family is old school in their thinking and, and just how they raised us. Like those things were important to us and they still are like, that's just how it is. So my family's big and if I got, I'm, I'm the youngest of six. So, but that was all ways big and important in our house. Just the way we treat people and the love and the respect you should have for somebody and the work hard mentality. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we work hard, we grind, like that's what we do. And well, I specifically we remember, you know, there's certain things. And also when 
you know, you have children. My son's now 17 and a junior in high school, but there's certain things that you try to teach your kids, but also as you're teaching your kids, you have a tendency to notice in others. And you talk about that, like, you know, when your brother came to that one NBC Sports uh, Chicago holiday party, mm-hmm. you know, he, uh, you know, we were all joking because, you know, here's, here's Big Dave wearing what he normally wears, you know. And all of a sudden, here comes his brother. He's got a suit and tie on. You know, he's he's all dressed up. You know, he's coming. Uh, doesn't mean Dave wasn't coming from work, but you're like, oh, hey, hey man, businessman. Here comes the <laughs> But, you know, firm handshake, look me in the eye, talk to me, you know, a brief conversation. But he was, you know, it was uh, appropriate greeting, uh, you know, very respectful. But, you know, that stuff, that stuff as you talked about, that's, that's taught. And then that's stuff that got people learn and they understand, you know, how that comes across, you know, mm-hmm. cause it's, you still know, I mean, that, that, it, uh, you know, that first impression is a lasting impression. Mm, very true. And, and Will, let me stay. I was looking phenomenal. Okay. Like, don't just be saying that to people, man. I, I had my say you were. I, hey, I looked amazing. <laughs> you're exactly right. You were phenomenal, but I said, it was just Dave being Dave. <laughs> yeah, it is. That that's true. That's very it's true. Just, it was simple as that. I, I didn't sit here and say, you know, he he was he looked bad, he looked poorly. I'm just, you know, it's it's not that I expected different, but yeah. you know, it's just um, I've seen you wear a suit mm-hmm. one time, yes, and that was to the uh, the Bulls charity Bulls. Mm-hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. and you looked quite dapper. I may add, I definitely did. Thank you, sir. <laughs> I told, like I tell you, I know when to do it. I know when to clean up and I know how to do it right, you know, but my family, we're all different individually. Like that's my brother. He's very comfortable wearing that. And I'm very comfortable in a, in a sweater and some jeans. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's where, that's where our comfort lies, but you know, it's all the same kind of thing, man. But yes, sir. But yeah, I'm glad you noticed that. So I got questions, Will, before we even talk about these bulls, I got questions, bro. Like I really want answered. Um, okay. So well, his, hopefully I'm, I'm here to help uh, answer those questions. Yes. Okay. So here's my first one though. So I know you wore number 32 uh, because yes. of Frank, Franco Harris. That's correct. Um, but you also wore 41 and 55. Were, were right. there reasons behind that? Or was that you just selecting those numbers? No, there were actually reasons behind that. So um, I wore 50 in high school. But then when I signed with Vanderbilt and I wore 50 in high school because I was like, you know, again, old school centers wore 50 mm. centers wore high numbers. You know, I go to Vanderbilt and um, a guy by the name of Brett Burrow was already wearing 50. He was this, you know, he was uh, the guy I was looking to replace. So I was like, Oh, he's already wearing 50. And so then I said, well, what do I want to say, well, I'll go with Franco Harris's number because my, you know, my favorite team growing up was the uh, Miami Dolphins because I grew up in Florida and they were obviously the only team in Florida at the time. But my favorite player was Franco Harris and he wore 32. So I asked and they had, nobody's wearing 32, so I wore 32. I get drafted by the Bulls, nobody's wearing 32, so I could still wear 32. I get traded to the San Antonio Spurs and Sean Elliott's wearing 32. And I'm not going to ask Sean Elliott, hey, man, can I have your number? 
you know, because obviously that has significance to him, but also at that point, you know, he's, he's a well-established player. He's, you know, he's been in the league. So I just said, okay, I can't wait. I never even thought about discussing buying the number from him or what's it going to cost me. I just said, you know what, I'll wear another number. And then uh, obviously David Robinson was wearing 50. Mm-hmm. So I said, that ain't happening. <laughs> so then I said, well, let me see. What's 50 plus 32 is 82 divided by two is 41. Hey, you guys got 41? Wow. <laughs> like, yeah, we got 41. So I wore 41. Wow. And that's the same thing. I, if I remember correctly, do the math with me. 41 plus 32 plus 50 divided by three, I think it's 55. Is that right? That's how I wore 55. And yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's the math I know. Yes, absolutely. For one year. Now, that I, that may not be correct, but I, I should I, my phone. I'd have to get up to get to my phone to use my calculator. But <laughs> yeah. that's that's so interesting. That's, I just, I, that's, it wasn't just pull the number out of us, out of the sky. So that's right. just kind of how it happened. You think most NBA players are like that? Like all those numbers really mean something? Um, when you've had success, it means something. You know, I was only in Portland for a year, had a cup of coffee, didn't play a lot. So yeah. I will honestly say sometimes when people ask me where I played, it's not that I forget about Portland, but I just don't mention it. Yeah. Okay. No, I understand. Um, I do have a 55 jersey, so I do have one. So, yes. Is that the only something? Is that the only one in existence? No, I I have a 32 Vanderbilt jersey, a 32 Bulls jersey, a 41 Spurs jersey, and a 55 Blazers jersey. Okay. All right. I didn't even know I had to. uh, So, my parents, this dude find this interesting. My parents uh, just moved, so they still had a lot of my stuff. So, I was going through my junior high yearbook looking at pictures and I was like, I wore 20 back in ninth grade. I was like 20, <laughs> but I was back in the day where the coach just, you know, threw you a Jersey and said, here's your Jersey. Here's right. your Jersey. Right. <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm wearing 20. Okay. <laughs> Thanks coach. I'll do it. Oh, uh, I wanted to know about your relationship with uh, like Stacy King and Scott Williams, because you guys were always the enforcers to me. Like, or for lack of a better word, like the goon squad. Because uh, <laughs> I, I, I firmly believe you don't win championships without goons on your team. And I thought you, I mean, dude, when you you were stabilizing, you know, that's how, that was the word my, my brother who you met used to always use about you. Because he used to rave about you to us and talked about how the, ba- how the Bulls uh, triangle, how perfectly it ran when you were in the game. And he always would show it like he was teaching us the game and, and where you would be on the court and the picks you would set and how you kept the ball movement and your rebounding and your toughness. He would always point that out to us. And Stacey King and Scott Williams were, were like that as far as the toughness. I, I think your IQ was a little stronger, but th- with the toughness and all, I, I thought that you guys were stabilized. So did you guys have like a friendly competition? Were you all tight? Like how, how did it work for you guys on the team? Yeah, I thought we were. I mean, it's that's and that's the hard part. You know, that's kind of where you're walking that thin line, you know, because every player wants to play as many minutes as possible, right? Mm. Um, but yet, you know, one of the things that we always had was, you know, an abundance of, of big bodies when I was with Chicago. 
you know, as you talked about, I was drafted and then, you know, Stacy was drafted after me and then Scott Williams, you know, later on down the line came on as a free agent. Um, you know, so <clears throat> my relationship with Stacy probably wasn't as strong as it was with Scott Williams. And there, you know, there's a specific reason for that, but, you know, I developed a pretty good relationship with Stacy because we used to sit up in the front of the plane together, you know, and everybody knows that, you know, Stacy's a talker. So he used to have some great stories where we just sit up there and listen to those stories. You know, most of them were about him, but you know, we would listen to those stories and have conversations and do different things. Scott Williams set up in front of the plane too, but you know, my relationship with Scott Williams was was stronger than with Stacy because my locker at the practice facility was right next to Scott's and Scott and I used to sit there and talk in the locker room, sometimes before practice, sometimes after practice, you know, to where we had developed a, a, a stronger bond, you know, um, I always got along with Stacy. I never had a problem with Stacy. Um, you know, him and I used to go at it at practice a lot, you know, cause they just kind of, as, Guys flipped around. Uh, Bill Cartwright wouldn't necessarily practice a lot. So, you know, we would take turns being with the first unit, so we have to guard each other. So it was uh, very competitive, friendly. But at the same time, you know, it got a little chippy every once in a while because, again, the guys want to play. Guys are competitive. That's, you know, when you're sitting on the bench and you're not playing, you always are asking yourself, am I doing something wrong? What's going on here? Because, you know, kind of like I talked to you at the beginning of the podcast about how, you know, you kind of kind of let your walls down a little bit. I, you know, kind of walked in, being, you know, like, okay, who are these outsider guys? You know, I know they're big fans. That's the whole, whole idea behind the show. And, but I kind of had to give you some time to, to uh, you know, prove your knowledge. But I had to be open to that. And the same thing. And like when we were playing with Stacy, you, you know, I, I was, you were, you never sit there and go, Hey, that guy's better than me. He deserves to play. You're like, Hey, that guy maybe have a better skill set, but I still think I'm better for whatever reason. You know, I still think I should be playing. So that's, it's kind of like, you know, everybody knows, uh, you know, partly what separates uh, professional athletes in all levels, all sports, football, basketball, baseball is, you know, whether they are outwardly have an ego or just it's internal, you know, we all have egos and that ego is what helps drive us, you know, and then part of that is just wanting to play. So all of us were competitive, you know, cause I've, I don't specifically remember an instance where Stacy and I or Scott and I or Stacy and Scott squared up, but, you know, you could see frustration at times when guys, you know, like if I went in the game for Stacy or Stacy came in the, in the game for me, I wasn't mad at Stacy. I was mad at Phil or, you know, Scott and I switched spots or we played together, you know, stuff like that. And sometimes that may, the body language may be have taken incorrectly by that person. Be like, I don't know why he's pissed off at me. I'm just coming in the game, you know, <laughs> but it's just, you had to learn how to, to balance those emotions, but also it, deal with the personalities, but I just know that, you know, as I said, Scott and I had a little stronger relationship because we would uh, talk a lot in the, at the old Birdo center with our lockers next to each other. When practice was over, we may sit there with bags of ice on different parts of our body, you know, just talk, ha having stories or, you know, Scott, 
I always tell this story. Scott Williams used to live. Scott was like, we had the Birdo Center was out in Deerfield. And Scott was like the first guy that's like, all right, I'm going to live downtown. You know, I'm a young guy. I'm vibrant. I want to live in the middle of the action. Well, you know, the only bad part about that is traffic. Yeah. So, you know, we used to always joke. Scott said he would always leave his uh, condo downtown at the same time every day. And on Monday, he may show up and get there, you know, 45 minutes before practice started. Tuesday, it may only be 15 minutes. Wednesday, it may be an hour. Thursday, he's running in. He's late. His shoes are untied. He's got his practice jersey over his shoulder. He's sprinting out to the court so he doesn't get a silly fine for being late. But it's just, it was all about traffic. Mm-hmm. So the days he was late, you know, I, I always went early and I literally lived three minutes from the practice facility because I always like to get my lift in first. And uh, I'd walk in and be like, hey, no traffic today, huh? Because he's already sitting in his locker. And then he'd be having his McDonald's breakfast or something. And so we would just, while we're, he's eating and I'm getting dressed, we'd just be talking and ask, you know, this, that, and the other. And so that's kind of why that friendship there was a little stronger. But, yeah. you know, it's just – uh and we're still friends to this day. Mm. And, uh, but same thing with Stacy, you know, that when I kind of went to San Antonio, he went to Minnesota, he went to Miami, you know, that kind of, I don't want to say fractured, but just, it, it wasn't there because now we're competing against each other. And then, you know, he came and started working for Chicago and I was bouncing around doing other things. But now that I'm back in Chicago with NBC sports, Chicago, you know, we've kind of rekindled that relationship and I enjoy uh, at least I did right now. We don't have that opportunity, but before home games going into, uh, as we say, the King's den where Stacy sits on his couch and, uh, you know, addresses people and going in there and talking to him about the games. What did I miss while they were on the road? Gets his, get his opinion on things. Talk to him about some of the things he puts on Instagram, you know, stuff like that. I do, I do miss, uh, not being able to do that before games. Mm. But you, played on teams that that had wars i mentioned uh to you you know i know you played against detroit and the knicks and you know just all these real physical teams but like the pistons man like was there like a like an incident or occurrence that like kind of validated for you that these detroit pistons games are going to be way different you know than the ones we usually go through I mean, that was the very first time that I actually got to play significant minutes, you know, because, I mean, I know, see, my rookie year, I think I had a total of like 184 minutes over 82 games. So I had a lot of DNP CDs, you know, but that was also my rookie year. They had Dave Corzine and, you know, traded for Bill Cartwright. And mm-hmm. Bill, that was probably, quite honestly, that first year was probably his healthiest year with the Bulls. Mm-hmm. But Dave was also the backup. And then the following years when they had the uh, expansion draft again, and I think that's when Dave ended up going to the Orlando Magic, if I remember correctly. But, you know, it was after – it was probably my second or – probably my second year in the league then when I started playing more. And literally, you know, probably that first game in Detroit, not only, you know, listening to the fans – and because the, the fans had totally bought into that bad boys image, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so they were, I mean, the fans were just as, I don't want to say bad, but they were basically, it's just, they were a, 
reflection of the team, mm. you know? So even the atmosphere was different. The personality of the fans was different. And then just playing significant minutes in, uh, you know, in the, at the, the palace, you know, I remember when I first came in, we were at uh, the silver dome, you know, so the fans were kind of far away, but by the time I really started playing significant minutes, now we're playing in the palace and everything's going on. And, and I just, I remember just like some on a boxing out or something. There was just a couple plays where I just literally got the shit knocked out of me. And I was looking at the official and they're like, play on. <laughs> and I'm like, this isn't basketball, <laughs> but I had to tell myself, this is basketball at this level. This is what this game requires. And that's where you're just like, you know, it's kind of like they say that the awakening, a slap in the face, you know, it's just like, Hey, this is, Every time we play Detroit, it's just different. You got to realize that mm-hmm. your mentality has to be different. Your approach has to be different. You got to keep your motions in check. There are just a lot of things that were just different. When it wasn't just, hey, the game's going to be more physical. That wasn't the only difference. Mm-hmm. And that's you know, it, and it takes a while to adapt yourself to that philosophy. Mm. What what was it like? Uh when you guys swept the Pistons and you're watching Isaiah walk off the court and walk by you guys, what was going through your mind? Were you okay with that? Were you like, Oh man, we just beat them and they quit. Or were you like, I don't, this is disrespectful. They should at least stay out here and shake our hands. It wasn't even that. It was just, I was stunned, you know, because that was the interesting thing. You know, early on in the league, got to remember this is, you know, late 80s, early 90s, like the Palace of Auburn Hills, right? Mm. This was out in the middle of, I don't want to say nowhere, but you're out in the middle of the burbs. There were no restaurants open after the game, nothing like that. So, when the, excuse me, when the Palace of Auburn Hills first opened, occasionally, you know, we would go up. They had a restaurant in the palace there. And if we didn't leave that night because we knew that the room service may not be open, we get back to the hotel, there's no food, whatever, you know, one or two instances, I remember eating up at that restaurant at the Palace of Auburn Hills. And of course, all the players are there from Detroit and you end up chatting with them. I wouldn't say that, you know, we're all friendly, but, you know, you had civil conversations. Hey, how you doing? You know, game's over. No big deal. But it was just as you're walking off in that smug look on Isaiah's face, you know, and it was quite honestly, and, that, and to, to his, to, to Isaiah's fault, you know, we probably more looked at it as, you know, him mm-hmm. walking off the court more so than the Pistons as a whole because we kind of felt like they followed suit. Okay, that's their leader. Zeke's the guy. He's walking off, so they're going to walk off. Um, and I, it, was, it was more like a stunned reaction. Because if you notice, as they're panning in front of – because they had to walk right in front of our bench. Yeah. It's not like anybody's jawing with them. You know, like, what the heck are you guys doing? What's This is disrespectful. Where's this – you know, where's the – uh, you know, it, it was just, 
it was more of a disbelief, kind of like guys were stunned. Mm-hmm. And then it was more, it was more of a discussion once the game was over. Mm-hmm. Once we got in the locker room, then it was kind of like, all right, it's finally set in. We, we swept the Pistons, and then we're like, what a bunch of assholes. They walked off the court, didn't shake our hands. And, you know, where's the sportsmanship? That's kind of when it had set in mm-hmm. because it's, I think we were more focused on the euphoria of just actually sweeping the Pistons, the, the, you know, just the Bulls kryptonite no longer existed, done, finished in the rear view mirror. So, and then it probably quite honestly became more of a big deal when the media was now asking questions about it and talking about it. And now you're kind of had a chance to kind of decompress and, you know, your emotions though are still a little bit raw. And then you're talking about it. It just kind of that probably talking, discussing with the media probably threw gas on the fire more than anything. Mm -hmm. So I know uh, my favorite, and I know uh, my boy Chris, our favorite Bulls championship season was 92 because we it was the first time I remember us feeling like we were literally the best team in the world and there's nobody, I think, better than us ever and we're not losing at all. Um, two, did you all have that same feeling and was what was your favorite uh, championship year? Well, my favorite was, I'll answer that part first. My favorite Mm -hmm. was 91 Mm -hmm. because, you know, A, we weren't supposed to beat the Lakers. And then that was magnified by the fact that we lost game one at home. Yes, yes. Even though we actually played pretty well, it was a close game, but we still lost. And then we won four straight. Yes. (laughs) And... That's kind of when I, I personally had learned, I learned about, you know, the significance of sacrifice, commitment, just to watch, you know, the emotions of Bill Cartwright and John Paxson um, and Michael, the outpouring of emotion that you weren't used to seeing from these guys. You know, you're just like, these are rough and tough grizzled veterans, badasses, and they're weeping like little boys, mm. you know, after winning that first championship. And, you know, kind of the ability to experience that with them, really learn, you know, what that means, but also see how that changes the narrative on players when they've won championships. Mm. That's probably why the 91 – and plus it was the first one for the Bulls organization. Yes. And it's right. just – you know, the parades in Grant Park and, you know, there's just, and I remember somebody being like, you know, this is what the Bears felt like in 85, mm-hmm. you know, even though we all still know it's a Bears town, but it was just, that's just what it was. You know, the thing that made 92 so enjoyable was, is that now we came in looking for validation. Mm-hmm. We're like, Hey, let's, you know, Let's not be one and done. Let's not be, hey, I won a championship, but we won one. Mm-hmm. You know, we know everybody's coming after us, so we got to send a message. You know, we're just not a one-trick pony. And that's kind of like you talked about. We didn't feel like we were invincible, but now we had the confidence of knowing how good we can be when we bring our A game. Mm-hmm. 
but we also now had the confidence, which we didn't have in, in years past, knowing that even if we don't have our A game, we can still beat other teams, not necessarily because we're superior, but because now we understand how to win. Now we understand how to deal with adversity. Now we understand that, you know, there's different aspects to just grinding a game out and winning a game, even when, you know, Michael doesn't bring his A game or Scotty's not on his game or one of those guys has to sit out. You know, we now have that experience of, of, you know, as they say, digging deep into the reservoir and finding ways to win games. And that, and the fun thing was knowing it was aggravating at times, but it was also fun at times because you just knowing you're getting to get a team's a, a game, knowing that you're going to be tested, knowing that, you know, these wins are going to make us better because it's, you know, as when the schedule comes out now, everybody, when are we playing the Bulls? They're the champions. That's how we're, we're now the measuring stick. But it was also fun sending a message, you know, hey, you guys got a long way to go. And not necessarily me saying that, but just kind of like the mentality and the personality of the team. And that was the other thing. I don't think we ever took that for granted. I don't think we were ever arrogant about it. It wasn't something like we talked about. But it was just something you could feel and practice, something you could uh, sense, you know, with body language and, and how guys talked and then just, you know, the different approach that players took. But at the same time, I think people need to understand, I mean, we still scrapped in practice. We still went at it. We were, you know, we were still working because we always felt like we could be better. It's amazing. What was – I know Phil Jackson uh, was known for – uh, putting guys together who who didn't necessarily hang out with each other. He would say, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but he would say, you know, go hang out with this person and just, you know, spend the night with them. And, you know, just to do that, just to basically build and grow your relationship and strengthen it. Uh, did he do that with you? And if so, who was the person he told you to hang out with? Um, I don't, you know, the one thing he wanted us to do, was as remember you talked about is just you know like how you were raised the respect factor. Mm -hmm. So to truly respect somebody, you need to learn more about it. Yes, he, he didn't want us to look at each other as just basketball players. He also wanted us to look at, at each other as people, as human beings. You know, uh, Phil Phil one year gave us this little book. You know, God, I wish I could remember the name of it. He just did weird stuff <laughs> where we would have to carry this little book with us. I mean, literally it was like the size of this, like a little pamphlet, right? So you like it. hands one out to everybody. Mm -hmm. Like, all right, we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to read it little. And each chapter was only like a page and a half. Right. And it was the, the, like the weirdest thing. Like one page, one chapter was on hygiene. <laughs> okay. Let's just read this one chapter. It talks about, you know, taking care of yourself, brushing your teeth, you know, you're just like, what the hell is going on? You know, and then it was about respect your neighbor and you read the chapter on that. And then it's just like, uh, you know, pay it forward and, you know, kind of like that movement. And, mm -hmm. But so, but he was always trying to let us, get us to look outside just the basketball picture. You know, respect the fact that Bill Cartwright has a wife and kids. Mm -hmm. Respect the fact that Michael's, you know, married to Juanita and respect the fact that, you know, so, you know, John Paxson is married to Carolyn and has two boys and blah, blah, you know, it was all, you know, 
and respect the fact that this person's single. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it was really, God, I wish I could go back and find that book, man. It was just like one of those things where you just like left scratching your head. You're just like, what is going on here? But it was kind of like, you know, Hey, the magician, you know, focus on the right hand, but on the left hand, I'm going to stick my hand and take all your money out of your pocket. But he right. was so he was always trying to teach us stuff, but it was almost like he was, I don't want to say tricking us into learning things, but it was almost like a distraction. So, because what's like, what do you talk about when kids talk about their teachers? You know, oh, my best teacher was so-and-so because of a, a, an approach they took. So it didn't really seem like schoolwork or homework. You know, Phil was teaching us life's lessons, not necessarily his life's lessons, but through books, through educators, you know, taking different approaches, but then tying all those things together. Um, you know, and honestly, Dave, I don't specifically remember. And it doesn't mean it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that's the one thing that's so good about when we guys get together and start telling stories. I'll tell a story. Stacy, you'll tell a story. John, Pat, whoever. Mm-hmm. Morris, Scotty, you're like, man, I forgot about that. Hmm. You know, something triggers that, that response to where you remember. But, um, you know, I don't remember a specific person that, um, you know, I was matched up with. But mm-hmm. I do remember, you know, specific instances like that. Because you guys all remember, unlike now where, you know, you can walk into the Bulls practice facility and get breakfast, then practice, then get lunch, then get a carry out, then go in the steam room, get a massage. You know, you could basically spend 12 hours there. Yeah, yeah. You know, our practice facility was just that, practice facility. We had no food, no – I mean, it wasn't the cozy comforts of home. We didn't have a film – we had a film room. But it literally was three a, a little postcard sized room with these hard ass chairs and you know nothing like the luxuries they have now. So when practice was over, boom, we were gone. But I remember it was like me, BJ, Scotty, Stacy, Horace, um, you know, most notably, as you just if you start thinking about it the single guys who didn't have a wife at home that would make them lunch or dinner. Or we used to end up at this uh, spot right around the corner from the practice facility, the Birdo center in Deerfield. And it had, it was something chicken had chicken in the name, but we never mentioned that we were going there, but we usually ended up there. Mm. And all of a sudden you'd walk in and Scotty and Horace would be there. And then, okay. So then they would go to the, two top they were at go to a bigger table as I slid in and then BJ came in and then Stacy came in and then, you know, and then that's, that was kind of like our time together. And then we finished having lunch and then we're out and everybody goes in a different direction, you know, and those were the little things is like, I would occasionally go to lunch with Bill Cartwright, but then I realized later that the only reason he went to lunch with me. So it was so I could pay. (laughs) A veteran move, sir. A veteran move. (laughs) But the one thing he would allow me to do when we would go have lunch was he would uh, pick my, he would allow me to ask questions. Mm. You know, it was kind of like that was the price of admission. Mm. We're going to go to lunch. And it was never planned. It was just like practice was over and he'd be like, hey, let's go to lunch. Mm. And we used to go to this place 
that was also kind of a, a, a spot for us was called Ada's Deli, A-D-A. Mm-hmm. It was tucked in behind uh, the multiplex before we moved over to the Birdo Center. Because literally, mm-hmm. you, we went from the multiplex in Deerfield to the Birdo Center. That was basically half a mile between the two. Okay. So we were all in that same little, you know, you, you could say our triangle was the corner of uh, Waukegan and Lake Cook Road in Deerfield. Oh, wow. You know? <laughs> so, and we're, and we're, you know, creatures of habit, right? We didn't necessarily expand too far out of that, uh, that realm there. Mm-hmm. But I just remember, you know, and then, but I would hardly ever go to lunch with, you know, Pax would have me over for dinner every once in a while. Um, you know, Bill and I would go to lunch periodically, but that's kind of where the time when I would try to pick their brains to learn about them, mm-hmm. but to also learn about BJ when I would hang out periodically. Um, you know, but those were the times. And, and when we were on the road, we would sometimes hang out, but it was also, again, an older veteran group where those guys had developed relationships, friends, whatever it was. You know, and sometimes on the road, you just like to get a little room service, turn on the tube, you know, and just have dinner and just sit there and watch a movie while you lay in bed and then call it a night. Mm. Was, was Bill the one who basically kind of taught you the game, like taught you how, you know, to be a big man in the NBA? Yeah. And I, I specifically remember an instance where, you know, I'm just peppering him with questions and all of a sudden he just stopped. And he's like, listen, I can't tell you everything I know. All right. Because at the end of the day, you're trying to take my job. Mm-hmm. So I will answer questions. I will help you. But there's some things you're just going to have to learn on your own. Mm-hmm. That's how I was taught. That's how I'm going to help you. But I'm just not going to, you know, give you, you know, the, the yellow brick road to taking my job. You're still going to have to earn it. Mm. Wow. <laughs> you know, because it's just, you were always like, hey, help, help me, help me. And he's like, you know, we're going to help each other. Right. Because, you know, one of the things that he would do for me was he's like, hey, this is a two way street. So what we're going to there wasn't ever a time a lot where we were on the bench together. But when we would, he would always make sure that I sat next to him so he could talk to me about something he saw me doing. Or he would ask me like, hey, how is so and so playing me? What's going on? Where is he on this certain play? Or he would cut during timeouts he would come to me with questions or if I noticed something at a timeout, I'd, I'd walk out to him as he was walking back to the bench, telling him what I saw. Mm-hmm. But that's quite honestly, probably something I wouldn't have thought about unless he had say, Hey, this is how this works. This is what we're going to do. This is how we're going to help each other. It's mm-hmm. amazing. Uh, I know, I guess, statistically uh, your best year was, I think what, 96, 97 uh, in San Antonio. Yeah. If I'm not mistaken. Um, and you said the 91 championship is your favorite year. Do you have a favorite season of basketball? Like regardless of the titles you won or anything, do you just have like a favorite NBA season for yourself? Um, it was probably the 95, 96 season when mm-hmm. I got traded. And that it was because of how it all developed after the trade. You know, you said, even though I think 96, 97 is when we went 20 and 62 because mm-hmm. everybody got hurt. So, I mean, right. I was playing 30 plus minutes a night and that was really, I don't want to say it was fun, but it was very rewarding 
for a lot of reasons. And I'll briefly talk about that before I get back to 95, 96. But it was just, I knew when I walked in that room, we were undermanned every night. I knew that most likely, even if we played our best game, we were probably going to lose. But it was probably, it was just the competitiveness and and how hard we played was really enjoyable. But also seeing, you know, and that was Pop's first year as the head, as the head coach, but just seeing the development of myself and other players how, and because of the family atmosphere, you know, I looked forward to going to the Alamo Dome every night, even though there was a good chance we were going to lose or being on the road or, you know, you could just see the, those bonds developing. But the reason why I say 95, 96, because first of all, I was really disappointed and hurt that I got traded. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, one of the things that Jerry Krause always preached was, is that, you know, I want a team with character, not a bunch of characters. I remember the, the second I found out I got traded, I was like, this is bullshit. <laughs> I just got traded for the biggest character in the league. That whole, that whole statement is just a bunch of BS, you know? <laughs> but what it allowed me to do was grow as a player. And that's... It's, it's not hard to admit, but, you know, I was disappointed because I got traded. I got disappointed because, you know, even though there was a lockout that summer, I put in the work to be prepared, you know, to be the full-time starter. I was looking forward to the challenge. You know, I, Michael's now had a summer to work on his game now, lose the baseball weight, deal with the frustration of losing to the Magic, you know, he was going to be ready to play. We were going to be the favorites to win a championship, you know, back on the horse, right? Mm-hmm. I get traded to San Antonio. I mean, I'm just, I'm grumpy for a couple of days. I finally take the trip, you know, I'm headed to San Antonio because remember I got traded, like the lockout ended on Monday. I think I got traded or Sunday. I got traded the very next day. And then camp starts that Friday. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like I had a couple of weeks to absorb you know, head down to San Antonio, shoot, find a place to live. It was like, boom, bam, down there, checking the whole, you know. And when I get there, I literally get to stay there for one day before we jump on the team bus and head over to Austin for training camp. But it was the fact that I, I fly into San Antonio. Dave Cowens, who is the, one of the assistants, picks me up at the airport. We immediately hit it off. It was kind of like you, you know. When you were talking about, hey, Will Produce walking in the room, I was like, this is Dave Cowens. Yes, yes. If you're a fan of the game, you know all about Dave Cowens. Mm-hmm. And I honestly had not even put two and two together when I first got traded. I was just pissed that I got traded, and I was probably what, you know, I'm going to cost myself a championship because I got traded, you know. But it was all of a sudden, like, literally, that's kind of when it hit me. There's Dave Cowens picking me up at the airport. Dave counts. And Dave's like, Hey, just want to let you know, I'm, the, uh, I'm one of the assistants. I was like, I, you know, I, and I'd already looked at the roster and looked at the coaching staff, and, but it wasn't like Dave counts. It was like, mm-hmm. it hit me when I saw him at the airport. I was like, man, the things that I can learn from this guy. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, he talked about kind of practice what they do. And I was like, all right, I'm going to be with this guy every day. This is my position coach. And 
we get to San Antonio and then I had my first meeting with Popovich and Bob Hill was the coach then. And Pop, Pop did a lot of the talking, not Bob Hill. And Pop said, all right, we traded for you for a reason. The Bulls tried to push a couple different players off on us. We didn't want them. We wanted you. So we're, this is what's going to happen. We're not going to sit here and, and, you know, have a kumbaya session. But what we're going to do here is that, and I learned quickly, Pop is just a very straightforward kind of guy. Mm-hmm. You've got four weeks to prove to us what you can do. You know, we know what you can do. We saw what you could do. We've played against you. We watched plenty of film. We traded for you for a reason. But, hey, take these four, four weeks of, pre, of training camp. Take the eight preseason games. You're going to get plenty of minutes. Show us what you can do. Can you shoot the three ball? Well, then if you think you can shoot it, then prove it to us. Can you score? Are you a more prolific scorer than what your numbers show? Show it to us. Can you do this? Show us. Can you handle the ball in the break? You know, he just said all these outlandish things, right? Mm-hmm. And he basically said, it's a clean slate. You're not trying out for the team, but you have four weeks to prove to us what you can do, and then we'll go from there. Because I, you know, we, meaning I and Bob Hill and the coaching staff, have an idea of how you can really help us. Mm-hmm. But I don't want you to think that we, we're trying to, you know, pigeonhole you into, okay, you can do A, B, and C. We're going to give you the opportunity and the freedom to show us what you can do. Hmm. Now, I didn't go out there and start jacking up threes, <laughs> but it was that immediate comfort level of, okay, hey, I've got their support. These guys are behind me, but they're giving me an opportunity now to kind of branch out, to expand my game. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of why that first year, you know, was just really enjoyable because it allowed me to do that. It answered mm-hmm. a lot of personal questions. Mm-hmm you know, about myself, about what it is I can do as a player. You know, it wasn't like my numbers jumped off the page, but I I felt like I became a valuable asset. You know, it wasn't like I didn't feel like I was a valuable asset in Chicago, but I always just Mm -hmm. felt like Phil Jackson and I were always butting heads, you know. Mm -hmm. We were always – we weren't ever on the same page. We were always, you know, uh, having disagreements, arguments, you know, where I always felt like – you know, I was on the same page with Bob Hill. I was on the same page with, with Greg Popovich. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just able to go and play basketball mm-hmm. within the confines of what, you know, the Spurs uh, identity was. But it was just, a, it kind of allowed me to kind of just relax and play basketball. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't feel, yeah, I mean, yeah, you step on the court every night feeling like you have something to prove. But I didn't, but I didn't feel like that, you know, I was always at odds with the coach or, I, you know, the coach didn't like me or, mm-hmm. and as petty as some of that stuff was, you know, when I was in Chicago, I just didn't, there wasn't any of that in San Antonio mm-hmm. from day one. And I remember at the end of the season, I just kind of like, you know, I just like, you know, it's probably in the best, my best interest of a person as a player that I got draft, I got traded and I got traded to this organization because it helped me answer a lot of questions. Hmm. Wow, that's amazing. Um, okay, I have a this is a question I have to ask just for myself. So game seven, Bulls Knicks, uh, the Hubert Davis game as as we call it. The Hugh Hollins, Hugh, <laughs> Hugh Hollins game as we call it. 
what what was that like, man? I because I, I can explain it to you as a fan because I, I didn't have cable at the time. Uh, when that, so I was sitting by the radio listening to this, and the way Neil Fung was describing it, he you know described it as Scotty blocks the shot. Oh my God, the Bulls won, the game is over, and I'm jumping up and down and I'm going crazy. And he said, wait a minute, there's a foul. And I'm like, what? You know, so I had this huge high and this huge low that I had never experienced before as a Bulls fan. Um, because again, I, I, I tell people all the time, one of the great things about that dynasty is I have no idea what it's like to lose in a finals. Like, I don't know what it feels like at all. So to have that feeling just be that high, like, dude, we beat these Knicks without Mike. We're as good as we think we are, as I've been watching all season. You know, I'm excited to come down to this. Oh, my God, I want to curl up in the ball and just cry myself to sleep. What was that uh, like for you, just watching that uh, transpire uh, on, on the team? Well, you know, first of all, that was the year I was not on the playoff roster because I had gotten hurt a little bit that mm-hmm. season, mm-hmm. towards the end of the season. I remember. So I got to watch a lot. But I just remember, you know, the same type of thing. Because it was so loud and just the way things went down, I, I thought we had won the game. Mm-hmm. And then that foul and the dejection and, and uh, the disgust. I mean, it was, it was very simple to, in my case, you know, being a fan, even though I felt like I was a member of the team because I was still practicing. I just right. wasn't playing. Right. Um, just the, it took a couple of days to get over that, mm. you know, because it's just, whether you agree with it being a foul or not, you just, we, as a team felt like something had been taken away from us Yeah, because that was now, you know, Michael's retired with the, and we were like, look what we've accomplished without him. Look at the statements that we've made. We've actually, we're showing people how good this team is. So, you know, just, it was kind of like the, you know, everything just kind of came crashing down for a while Hmm. because it wasn't like, as as a human being, you want to be able to control your destiny, right? Hmm. You want to have the ability to, to make those decisions, have a hand in, and doing that, shaping your future, even though the future is the next game or the next series. But when something like that happens, you kind of feel like something's been taken taken away from you, right? Something's something's been stolen. Mm-hmm. Like you walk in and you're like, "Damn, somebody broke in my house." What the, you know, you you you're then that's when your vulnerability is exposed, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it was kind of like the same type of thing because it's just. Yeah, you, it was kind of like an excuse, but at the same time, you just the the, the disgust, the, the dejection. It, it's it was, I mean, that was hard to deal with. But then it was it quickly changed into motivation. Mm. You know, as far as getting ready and moving on, because that's the other thing you you learn is is hardly ever does anything go your way. It's, it's just you're constantly dealing with adversity, whether it's on the court, off the court, there's always something that you can get uh, sideswiped by. You can get distracted. It's just, it's, it taught you, it teaches you a lot about discipline. Wow. 
you you were there, uh, Will, for some just unforgettable moments for me personally, and I'm sure a lot of Bulls fans. Uh, like you were there to when when Jordan played point guard, which I don't think people talk about enough because that was just incredible. Uh, the numbers he put up and kind of what he did that year. You were there when Pippen. I remember the Pippen game where he I think he missed what one shot when you were like 14 or 15 or something like that. Yeah. Um, you were there when Tony Kukoc, you know, hit that shot against the Knicks and just several, you know, game winners actually that season. Uh, what was there a moment where you were just watching one of one of those guys or any guy just on your team just watching on court like, wow, like it just it just kind of blew you away with what you were seeing. I mean, that happened quite honestly when I first got there because. You know, initially, I just thought that, hey, I'm getting, I got drafted by the Bulls. I'm going to play basketball. Right. And I realized real quickly, like, no, it's not that easy. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to play basketball, but now you're playing with the best player in the game. Mm. And you have to figure out how to play with him. Because you got to remember also back then, he was ruthless. You know, not only against opponents, but to his teammates. Mm-hmm. Because he just, he didn't, accept imperfection he didn't accept mistakes you know he would not hesitate to dress you down in front of twenty thousand people and at the old stadium or on the road so that took some getting used to but also at the same time you would catch yourself on numerous occasions watching him play which would then put yourself in that would be the biggest problem Mm -hmm. was because of who he was and you're enthralled by that's Michael Jordan, mm-hmm. you know, and what makes it even worse. And I don't want, I don't mean this in a bad way, but just kind of something you have to adjust to is just uh, everyone, everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody wants to touch him. Everybody wants his autograph. Everybody wants to take a picture with him. It's just, this dude was, was God. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you would realize that oh, I'm, I'm on the floor with Michael Jordan, you know, <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but you would catch yourself in games, and this was early on, where you would just – you wouldn't be playing the game. You would be participating, but you were watching him play. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden he would throw you a pass, and you'd have your hands down, and you would try to get your hands up, and you'd fumble it, and it'd go out of bounds, or it would be a turnover, and then he would be pissed. He'd be hot. Mm-hmm. And you had to realize that, hey, you just – you still got to play. Regardless of what he does – this isn't about you being a coming out here and being a fan. You still got to be a player, you know? So then you kind of had to adjust to just trying to almost ignore what he's doing, ignoring what Scotty's doing. I mean, it's all part of the, you know, getting out there and competing, but there were times where like you talk about where just something they would do that would leave you mesmerized. Whereas you're walking down the other end of the floor you know, you're busting your ass to get back on defense, but you're like shaking your head going, man, did you see that? Like you're talking to yourself. You're not really talking out loud, but you're just like, this is, you know, on one hand, you're like, this is amazing. But then on the other hand, you're like, all right, don't get caught up in this. You're in the middle of the game. Just, mm-hmm. you know, that's just one of a million things he's done or going to do. Just, just keep playing. But it was also, as you talk about, you know, I'm glad you put it that way was just, seeing the growth of Scotty and seeing the things that he could do. Like they, I, I can specifically remember times where, you know, I'm wrestling with the guy in the post 
And Scotty's man is the one that's trying to make the entry pass, but Scotty's Ding up this guy so hard and making it so difficult for him that you would stop mm. and be like, you know, let's see if this guy can get out of the straight jacket, you know, but then, and then Scotty would create, or because of his pressure, he would, the guy would then could make the pass into the post. So he's trying to make the pass up to the top of the key. Michael would obviously read the situation, shoot the gap, get the steal, go in for the dunk and people go crazy. And you're like, yeah, but that's, that was Scotty did that mm-hmm. not Michael Scotty you know Michael reaped the benefits but Scotty was the one that made that happen mm-hmm. you know that it's kind of funny you may bring that up man I wonder if we should we should start getting a new uh category in the stats department of a defensive assist mm. Mm, that would be dope because yeah or they call them hockey assist and, and stuff like that like right Scotty dude like yeah that's why he was so amazing at what he did was just those facets of the game that he was like a utility belt kind of, you know what I mean? Like yep. if, if Mike was Batman, like Scotty's the utility belt, like and Batman can't operate without a utility belt. He must have it. So every tool that he needed or what you needed to succeed, Scotty had it, man. Yeah. But you think about this and I know a lot of people don't take it, don't talk about it this way, but as Scotty got better, Michael, because Michael always wanted to be the best, Michael yeah. had to get better. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because, you know, you, you can agree, disagree, but for the sake of argument, if a team has the best two players in the league, they're constantly pushing each other, mm-hmm. you know? And because of, you know, Scotty, as you talk about skill set, Michael had to work on other aspects of his game. Yeah. Michael had to continue to push himself. So I don't think Scotty gets enough credit for a how good he was, but also the things that he forced Michael to do for Michael to continue to be the best player. Because I I argue that Scotty was probably the playoff MVP in '98, mm-hmm. not necessarily the Finals MVP, but the whole playoff MVP. Because you go back and look at every series and look about and go back and watch those games. And you come back and tell me what player had the biggest impact on each playoff series. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, I, uh, I mean, I feel like it was Scott. I mean, he was second in scoring, second in rebounding. I think he was first in assist, first or second in steals. And I know in one or two of the series, he actually, I think, averaged more rebounds than Dennis. Mm-hmm. But when it was all said and done, I think he was second on the team in a rebounding average. Amazing. But it was actually brought back, brought back to light to me because I remember going back and watching some of the games on YouTube as I'm watching 30 for 30. Because mm-hmm. I started thinking about, you know, who – uh, you know, we always focus on Michael, but who actually had the biggest impact when you take both ends of the floor and the things that each person did or was required to do and who that person had to guard? Yes. And I think that that's something that's not talked about enough, you know, that probably Scotty was the MVP of the playoffs, not necessarily MVP of the finals, which Michael mm-hmm. was, but MVP of the, of the playoffs as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that's why I also love 92 so much because it seemed like after you guys won that first championship, it clicked for Scotty. Like, it just clicked. Like, oh, snap, I'm, I am this good. 
I yeah, am. But you know, you know what I think it is though. I was just actually talking about this yesterday to that same guy. It was that uh, the dream team. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because if I correct me if I'm wrong, we won the championship in '91. Mm-hmm. So the summer of '91 was the dream team, right? Yeah, I thought it was '92. It might have been '92. Was it '92? I think it was but I know 92. the dream. The, yeah, you're right. The even years because the dream yeah. team had something to do with that. And uh, yep, '92. But I think it was also just winning that championship. As you talk about, that's when, you know, I think Scotty felt like he had arrived. Yeah. But also, you got to remember that's when he was really 100% healthy. Yeah. Yes. Yes. He looked good so, too. But yeah. And, but also, even the next step of, uh, you know, the dream team of what Scotty was able to accomplish on that. Mm. You know, because I just, I've heard stories about just those talk about, you know, it's one thing to, to practice hard when you're with the Bulls because there's different level of players. Mm-hmm. But then think about, I just heard the, 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 the stories are legendary about the practices of the dream team when you basically just have all the top players of the NBA. Right. Going at it, talking trash, just, you know, now you're talking about everybody there is on the same level. Yeah. You know, there's not the different levels of players. So it was. It's fantasy you know, camp. Yeah, basically, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so my final question on this before we uh, get into the Bulls talk is, I, I want you to give me a a Johnny Box story because uh, I know how beloved he was and how instrumental and how important uh, he was to you guys and to the Bulls uh, organization as a whole. So what's your favorite like Johnny Box story? Well, Johnny Box used to, uh, you know, he's military guy. That was the best part. We had a guy who wore cowboy boots with everything, except for when he wore tennis shoes during practice with a bolo tie. Mm -hmm. And then we had another guy who uh, was an older coach that developed a triangle, but the one that wore the cowboy boots and the bolo tie was not known as Tex. It was the other guy. So you had Tex Winter and Johnny Bach. So everybody was like, hey, that's Tex Winter, right? I'm like, nope, that's Johnny Bach. (laughs) So we used to always talk about that, but, um, you know, Johnny Bach wasn't the type of guy that would put his arm around you and tell you everything's going to be okay, Mm. but he was very personable, you know, and if you would allow him, he had some incredible stories, a lot of them military stories, Mm -hmm. but he also used to break, he used to make model planes and all kinds of stuff. He was just, that was his thing. But the one of the stories I always talk about was, is, you know, Johnny Bach developed our defense. Mm-hmm. He came up with the term, if I remember correctly, you know, the Doberman defense. Maybe incorrect, but if he, even if he didn't come up with it, he took to it. Because he's like talking about, you know, Dobermans are, Dobermans are guard dogs. This is, we got to play defense like guards. We got to play the Doberman defense. Mm-hmm. And he alone, not Phil, not text. He alone would set up our defensive schemes. That's how important he was to this team. Mm-hmm. But yet Phil also gave him full autonomy to do that. That was a great recognition by Phil to allow Johnny to do his job. He didn't step in and be like, ah, no, Johnny, we're not going to do that. That was just like when it was time to do the defensive uh, aspect of practice, Johnny Bach took over. Mm-hmm. He had the floor. He had the voice. You know, Phil would just kind of just listen. Like he was one of us. Now this Johnny's telling us how to do it. But the one thing I used to talk about was, is Johnny Bach used to always have 
the ace of spades in his uh, the pocket of the breast pocket of his uh, blazer, sport coat, whatever you want to talk about. Mm-hmm. And because what he would talk about was when we reached a point in the game where he feel like we had won the game, he would like during a timeout, you know, guys would be around and he'd kind of open his pocket up, pull the ace of spit. You know, he wouldn't pull it out and show it, but he'd kind of just pull it out a little bit so everybody could see it, meaning game over. Because what that was, was uh, what the military used to do. I think it was in Vietnam. I, I, but, you know, when they would make a kill, they would put the ace of spades on the body. Mm-hmm. And that was something that Johnny Bach took, you know, from military practice. So the ace of spades was the card of death. Mm-hmm. And when he opened up his pocket and would pull up the ace of spades, that's when you knew that he knew even though the game wasn't over on the scoreboard, that's when he knew the game was over. Wow. And he always would carry that ace of spades in his the breast pocket of his sport coat or, you know, suit coat. And that's when, you know, you were kind of during timeouts, you'd kind of be looking around and be like, what's Johnny Bach doing? <laughs> the coaches would go out in the huddle on the floor, right? By the, and then when they would come back, Phil would talk and then the players, the coach, then the assistant coaches would be sprinkled in with us if we weren't in the game. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're like looking at corner-eyed, looking at Johnny Bach, and if he started to open up his breast pocket, you're like, "Oh, game over," mm-hmm. you know. Even though it's a tight game, but it was just the confidence that Johnny had that he instilled in us as a team. But just the techniques and uh, the schemes that he used, he knew that if run correctly, game's over. Dude, that had to that had to get you hyped on another level when you saw him pull that out, even if you might not have been feeling like you were winning that game or you don't know and you weren't unsure. Like if he pulls that out, you're like, oh, there it is. Okay, we're done. Like, let's yeah. go in this. That had to get you hyped. Wow, that's amazing, man. But that's also, the, that's like, that confidence is, is you know, you know, it's like a game. You see a game of runs. Like, mm-hmm. you know, they let the team, they build confidence and develop. That's the, like you talk about, the confidence you had that he knows that if we do what we're supposed to do, we're okay even though that team may be on a 6-0 run or something, or we're drawing up a play, or you know they're drawing up a play. But it's the confidence that would instill in you and the team because, hey, the coach really believes in us. Mm-hmm. You know, as you talk about that, would, that would, you know, whether it's confidence, hype, whatever it was, it was just like, that was just, but that's also what could help you relax a little bit and not let you, and you wouldn't get uptight. tight.